Flight 381, request permission for landing. Ladies and gentlemen, we have started our descent and will shortly be landing. For your safety, please securely fasten your... The climate group, Possible, say that air travel is uniquely damaging behavior, resulting in more emissions per hour than any other human activity. In articles, papers, and press releases, they point the finger at an elite minority of flyers and accuse them of driving climate change. They lament politicians trying to rebuild the aviation industry and call for a new low-carbon normal to follow the pandemic. Demands echoed across the climate activist community. But what do I believe? Over the past months, as Patrick and I explored the passenger aviation industry, I found myself torn between I'll never fly again and I have no choice but to continue my high carbon lifestyle. Like our listeners, we've been listening and forming our respective opinions and trying to figure out the best way forward. At what point is flying justified? And who gets to do it? Only the wealthy who can afford heavy taxes on air tickets? And what about the 80% of the world's population which has never flown? Do the rest of us have the right to impose climate change on them? I am Dr. Patrick Reinmuller, and that was my colleague, Dr. Jim Pulcrano. Welcome back to Should I Fly? With the COVID-19 pandemic's effect on air travel, we saw this as a perfect time to try to understand its impact on the world and how or why travel might change. We had nine questions at the start, from what is the impact of commercial passenger aviation on global warming, to how will technology help, and what are my choices, and how do we make them? However, even now, we continue asking ourselves if those were the right questions. Yes, an example of the old adage that we learn from our friends at IDEO, that you can't get good answers if you don't ask the right questions. And you can't get anywhere without asking questions. In this spirit, Jim, let's just start. The first question we had to clarify for ourselves was, what is the real impact of commercial passenger aviation on global warming? Passenger aviation accounts for 2.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. With the fact that much of that occurs high up in the atmosphere, its impact is closer to 3.5%. By comparison, road traffic is 15%. In a 2014 study by the insurance company Allianz, citing the 15 largest sources of greenhouse gases, aviation was number 15. Electricity production was number one, residential buildings second, road transportation third. Cement and glass production were seventh, and livestock eighth. This will not remain static. As each sector races to reduce its impact on the environment, aviation's relative impact will go up unless big changes are made. Jim, that could make some feel better about all the flights they take, no? I wouldn't say better, as we all have to do everything we can in every facet of our lives to save the planet. The very obvious answer to the question, what can I do when it comes to improving sustainability in aviation, would be to fly less, or not at all. But then again, it's not so easy, as some may have family members abroad or absolutely have to travel for certain work events. For that reason, I believe it doesn't make sense to be completely dogmatic when it comes to taking flights. 
Instead, it would already be a big leap if we see flying as a special, once in a while event again, which it used to be in the past, instead of looking at it as the cheap mode of travel for the next spontaneous weekend trip. That was Professor Julia Binder, who recently joined IMD from the EPFL with deep research expertise in sustainability. Jim, besides simply looking at CO2 emissions, are there any other negative impacts that I should consider when choosing to fly? As you said to me the other day, Patrick, it isn't only the flying that generates emissions. For example, how do I get to and from the airport? Do I take the train or drive? How much luggage do I carry? If I live far from an airport, maybe I don't care about the noise. But what about the effects of all those loud takeoffs and landings on people who live nearby, especially young people? Our third question was, do we really need to travel long distances, whether that is for work, pleasure, or family? I have to say, for many situations, both private and professional, I don't see a way around this. Yes, Zoom has become a normal part of our daily routines, but for many things, long-distance travel by air is a necessity. Patrick, I remember you citing the listener in South Africa who said it was easy for Europeans to tell the world not to travel. But when you live at the tip of the African continent, it isn't quite so easy. Both of us have immediate family members living on the other side of the world, and we both want to do everything we can for the environment. But should that also include depriving ourselves of holding our loved ones in our arms? That reminds me of a quote from the British novelist Pico Iyer. We don't travel to move, we travel to be moved. Jim, our fourth question was tough. How do alternative means of travel compare when we look at time, cost, and emissions? Of course, if there are no alternatives, the question is mute. There is no train from Lausanne to Tokyo or San Francisco. If there are alternatives, clearly aviation trumps alternatives on speed most of the time. Yet does speed matter for each trip? If flying to London is faster than the train, but time is not of the essence, I would see the decision hanging in the balance. Cost is important too. Flight tickets are usually more expensive than train or bus tickets, except in Argentina, as Julian Cook explained to us with Fly Bondi. The point-to-point -point budget airlines challenge this. The question about greenhouse gas and which mode of transport is more or less harmful remains difficult. You just mentioned road transportation as the third largest source of greenhouse gases with 15% compared to passenger aviation's 3.5%. This is too simplistic. Sitting on the couch receiving deliveries all day while mining cryptocurrency and enjoying streamed music and movies is certainly not a better alternative. Mobility is not bad. Yes, humans are born to be mobile. In an earlier episode, we highlighted the link between curiosity, mobility, and innovation. Mobility is here to stay. We just need to make better decisions about what to do now. This brings us to our next question. If I choose to fly, what can I do to reduce my environmental impact? Professor Julia Binder, again. A new form of consciousness means to compensate for flights you really cannot avoid. 
just like with many other sustainable consumption choices, for example, eating less meat, it's not so much about switching from excessive use to no use, but to make more conscious decisions and to acknowledge that our choices have consequences. What is important to understand is that every individual can play an important role in changing the system that gives rise to the most severe problems of our time. And this is good news. Why? Because it allows us, as individuals, to take ownership for the changes we want to see in our economy and society, instead of waiting for governments or businesses to make the decisions for us. Anita Roddick, the founder of The Body Shop, once famously said, if you think you're too small to have an impact, try going to bed with a mosquito. Our individual responsibility in the 21st century requests us to take a personal stance when it comes to our consumption behavior. Radically reducing flights is thereby a much needed first step in becoming sustainability change agents ourselves. That resonates with what our listeners responded in their answers to our questions. They're searching for their own solutions that improve on the three-way trade-off between time, cost, and emission. Some advocate using less carbon-intensive modes of transportation, favoring local products, increased use of home office and remote meeting facilities, riding by bicycle rather than taking my car. In the last month, some have even taken to more drastic actions. Shifting to virtual conferences, no vacation flights. Others sold their second cars. Reducing greenhouse gases individually is important. How fair is this? Expecting the individual to take responsibility for what governments won't do. In our exploration, it was surprising to see what a small percentage of the world flies. And that led to our next question. From a societal perspective, how equitable is flying? In France, 2% of the population took half of the flights. In China, 5% of households took 40% of flights. And in India, just 1% of households took 45% of all flights. Is flying a privilege of the rich? Aviation is not just a luxury, definitely not. Aviation has made the world a smaller place, connecting friends and family a lot quicker to more places and enabling the average person to see so many different parts of our planet. I have to say that you only have to stand in an airport to see people saying goodbye to each other and the sorrow. It's palpable. You can feel they're being parted. But then the other nice thing is when especially when we arrive in islands or, you know, in far-flung places. I've flown to Sydney, Australia, and you see people waiting for their loved ones to come off the plane or you see people hugging each other just because they're so pleased to be together. And that is definitely not a luxury. That was Captain PJ Alsop of British Airways, whom you heard in an earlier episode. PJ has spent 32 years bringing people together around the world and I'd say the pandemic had made this even more of a need. We have to hope that companies like Boom and their investors like American Express make long-distance, carbon-neutral flying at low cost a reality. This would also make air travel more accessible for many. Here's Swiss pilot Captain Andrea Buffer. Nowadays, you travel the Atlantic for less than 
500 francs. Total amount. I had passenger on board my plane, traveling from Boston, Europe, and Greece. And the way back, they paid the airfare 99 US dollar. My daughter went to Madrid for five bucks from Geneva. Okay, even if many individuals take fewer flights, greater aviation access for many more people will result in a net increase in emissions. This creates room for other opportunities. Can we make an argument that in the future, every citizen would be allocated carbon credits that they can buy and sell? How about a carbon bank account? If you don't use yours, you can sell them to those with high carbon lifestyles like me. This is a system we've created for companies. Is it unrealistic to do the same for individuals? Or how about a carbon coin, a type of cryptocurrency that permits every one of us to buy and sell our individual carbon credits? Science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson thinks that this is the way forward and spoke at COP26 about it. Avoiding and reducing emissions are key, but what else can we do? Earlier in this podcast series, we heard from one of the founders of Climeworks. A few months ago, they opened the world's largest CO2 extraction and capture facility in Iceland called Orca. Orca will capture 4,000 tons of CO2 per year, making it the world's biggest climate positive facility in operation. Using Climeworks' state-of-the-art technology is one of the most impactful ways to capture CO2 as part of stopping climate change, and we need more of them. Thanks to what I've learned during this podcast work, I've increased my carbon offsets with Climeworks. I hope others will do the same. Great. Cleaning up is fine. The next question picks up there. What about cleaner flying? In the foreseeable future, will travel get better? Are technologies improving so that environmental impact is reduced? Well, in the 35 years that I was with my UK airline, the thing that improved dramatically was efficiency of the aircraft and reduced flying times. And I think that is something I'd like to see progress even further over the next 10 to 20 years, whether it's subsonic or supersonic. That was Steve, who worked for 35 years as a BA chief steward. Andrea Ufer has seen the same over his career. I remember some numbers to cross the Atlantic from Europe. We loaded about 100 tons of fuel back in the 90s. And now I load about a little more than 35 tons, depending on the wind's condition. A little bit less passenger, but not in proportion. So we increased the efficiency by 100%, at least. More economical, more environmental friendly. Willie Walsh, Director General of IATA and former CEO of British Airways, spoke to us recently. It's been an interesting couple of months of late. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to sit down and have a discussion with somebody known to many in the industry, Bertrand Picard. He was reflecting on the challenges that he faced when developing solar impulse and technological challenge to fulfill his ambition to fly around the world using electric power. And what a fascinating story and what a fascinating individual. But it reminded me that 
You know, technology represents fantastic opportunities for us and we should never give up hope. I'm reminded of George Bernard Shaw who said that people who say it cannot be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. And I think that sums up the challenge that aviation faces because clearly we have a massive challenge ahead of us to decarbonize the industry. If I choose to fly, can I be easily informed of the type of jet I'll be flying on and its environmental impact? What else can I do? Some passengers might ask this question, and especially the age of the aircraft, because of their concerns, for example, with the 737 MAX and the past laxness of its manufacturer and the FAA. Others might worry that if the plane is very small, they'll have to even check their hand luggage. It's easy to know what type of plane you will be on by simply consulting the airline website for the details of your flight. I did that on my last flight between Dubai and Geneva and saw that I had a choice of an Airbus A350, an A320neo, or a Boeing 777. Using Google Flights or the flight-free website, you can know your flight's emission impact. For an upcoming flight I have to the United States, I see that the flight and class I've chosen is 2% less than the average. Good, but aside from knowing the plane type, what else? There are some quite simple ways in which you can reduce your carbon footprint uh, when you're flying because we have to be realistic. People will continue to fly. So number one, choose the newest possible aircraft when you're choosing your flight. They are more fuel efficient than older models. Book an economy ticket instead of a business class or a first class ticket if you can because these also have lower carbon emissions and first and business class tickets tend to end up of course taking more space and more weight on the airplane and there are usually empty seats in those sections. Reduce the amount of things that you take with you for example and perhaps avoid taking a very small plane or one of these extremely large planes. Usually the ones with your typical single aisle plane are the most fuel efficient. And then choose direct flights if you can without layovers because going through an additional hub will increase your carbon footprint. That was Natalia Olinek, IMD's Head of Sustainability. We also learned that new aircraft types like the Boeing 787 Dreamliner and Airbus A350 are built using lighter composite materials, which allows them to burn less fuel. They also feature upgraded air ventilation and circulation systems, allowing the cabin pressure to be like lower altitudes. This should leave you feeling less dehydrated and less jet lag. Fine, avoiding, reducing, capturing CO2. What about the other consequences of my choices? If I choose not to fly or to fly less, what is the impact on jobs? According to an article in the New York Times, the UN World Tourism Organization estimated that tourism accounted for about 5% of the world's human-produced carbon emissions in 2016. Obviously, this is not just aviation. Another study cited by the Times found that from 2000 to 2013, tourism was responsible for 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions and that the industry is growing fast enough to outstrip its efforts to decarbonize. 
But as we heard previously, tourism is an industry that employs many. For example, almost 10% of jobs in the European Union are in tourism. So if many of us decide not to fly, to forego that holiday on the other side of the world, we are inevitably going to cause people to lose their jobs in places that require flying to get there. This will also negatively impact the jobs associated with airports and the revenues that governments get from people flying into and staying in their regions. The last of our initial questions. Without or with less air travel, what about my effectiveness as a family member, friend, or business person? I was recently talking with a senior executive responsible for a group of 6,000 people around the world, and he was unsure of how to answer this question. Maybe it is safer, while the pandemic still ravages the world, to keep working from home. But what happens when his salesperson zooms in for a customer meeting while his rival makes the effort to spend a day and fly in for a physical meeting? Who wins the business? Great point. Even if customer-facing jobs return to flying, what will happen to internal interactions after COVID? Will organizations stay heavily technology-mediated? It seems we are creatures of habit, unable to change even when the evidence suggests we must. The pandemic has forced many of us not to fly. For me, it was 18 months of no flying, and then over the past four weeks, I've done four flights including one on a private jet, which has an even greater impact per kilometer. It seems I've gone back to business as usual. We asked Thomas Velikot of the WWF how he sees the effect of the pandemic. I think there's sort of two ways we think about it. One is sort of as a temporary phenomenon of what's happening now, and that's all the stories we've heard in the last year about people in Delhi being able to see the Himalayas or people in Venice being able to see the fish in the, in the lagoon and, and things like that. But that's a temporary thing. The moment we go back to sort of full operations, that's going to shift back. So I don't think that's the really important thing. And then there's the other side of what might actually be changes which will last. And that's not usually stuff that's new now, but it's sort of where we're seeing an acceleration of pre-existing trends that were already around before the pandemic. What are some examples you've seen of these pre-existing trends taking hold now? You know, so many people are experiencing new behaviors now. Let's just take Zoom as an example. We're such animals of habit that I think you need to try those things yourself and see what it feels like in order to change behavior. And I think a lot of people have been forced to do that. And I don't think we will go back to the status we had beforehand just because this has now happened for a while and people have seen the negatives, but also the benefits of doing so. So th there's just this speeding up of this trend towards using tools such as video conferencing that was already happening before, but it's just been happening on steroids now. I think the second thing which may have more longer term consequences is that people were becoming more and more aware that it wasn't us here and nature out there and we need to somehow take care of nature, but it's much more we are part of nature. 
And if we take care of nature, we're not just looking after the polar bears, but we're actually looking after ourselves and our children. And that's a, quite a fundamental shift because then it doesn't really matter whether you are into polar bears or not, but everyone's into their children and wanting to guarantee a future for their children. So all of a sudden that becomes a much greater urgency for a greater number of people. And a third one, which may have longer term consequences, is that again, we're sort of seeing business model changes, which were already happening, just accelerating greatly. And I mean, we're talking about the aviation industry. If you just take that, you know, retirement of quad jets, for example, of large jets such as the Airbus 380 or the Boeing 747, that was happening before, but now it's just been happening much, much faster. Or airlines coming up and flying narrow body jets on long, long range routes. Again, that was already happening before, but much, much less than it's happening now. So I think we're seeing an acceleration of these business model changes as well. That is all good. Video conferencing, growing awareness and retirement of large jets. The emphasis on retiring old technology is growing. Does this mean a booming second life market for aircraft with old technology? Is there any way we can talk about aviation being part of the circular economy? What happens to a plane when it is decommissioned? Today in the Mojave Desert in California, just north of Los Angeles, there are almost 200 planes either scrapped or waiting for someone to find something to do with them. Qantas even used the Mojave facility to store its planes during the worst of the COVID pandemic. Nearby in Tucson, Arizona, there's a military boneyard with over 4,000 retired military aircraft. In Spain, at the Tarmac Aerosave, the largest airliner storage facility in Europe, as of the summer of 2020, the airport had almost 100 wide-body airliners parked there. Sounds like some of these are recycled or stored during the COVID downturn, but it seems that once a plane is built, there's little to be done with it when its life is over. It seems recycling an aircraft is as challenging as the recycling of cell phones and laptops. Airports are also getting into the game of reducing greenhouse gases in other ways. Similar to the smaller Geneva airport, Schiphol in Amsterdam announced on October 29th that it is incentivizing the use of quieter and cleaner aircraft. Continuing to use the noisiest and most polluting planes will cost airlines five times more than using the quietest and least polluting. The charges for landing and taking off at night are also increasing, with a fee 600% higher than the standard daytime charge. In behavioral economics, the idea of nudging is powerful. Nobel Prize winner Richard Thaler and Cass Sandstein from the University of Chicago and Harvard popularized this approach with their book in 2008. It has taken hold in aviation. The airports are nudging the airlines. Schiphol is introducing a new incentive for the use of sustainable aviation fuel. Airlines that fill up their planes with biofuel or synthetic fuel will get 500 euros and 1,000 euros respectively per ton of sustainable fuel. At this stage, that contribution could add up to 15 million euros over a period of three years. We are seeing significant advances in the production or the commitment to produce sustainable aviation fuels 
because for the airline industry, this does represent the best opportunity in the short to medium term while we wait for the longer term technological solution to the challenge, which, as I said, will probably come in the form of uh, hydrogen powered aircraft. But sustainable aviation fuels, fuels that are developed with true sustainability in mind, with a significant reduction in carbon footprint, up to 80% is possible based on the technologies that have already been approved. Yes, and the airlines are nudging passengers. Lufthansa has created a system to make it easy for individual passengers to compensate for their flights. With their Compensate website, all you have to do is put in your flight and tell it how quickly you want to offset your carbon emissions. It calculates the amount of CO2 generated by your flight, and then you pay. Simple. For example, my dream flight from Geneva to San Francisco generates 627 kilos of carbon dioxide. If I want to be immediately offset, I buy SAF, Sustainable Aviation Fuel, and I pay 335 euros. Wow. Okay. Now that hurts. If I decide that it is okay for my offset to take up to 10 years to have the desired impact, I pay just 13 euros. Okay, now this is easy and cheap. Why isn't everyone doing this? Why isn't it mandatory? With American Airlines' cool effect scheme, rather than giving me the option to buy SAF, my payment goes into environmental projects. My imagined flight to San Francisco, if done with American Airlines, would require a payment of $21 to offset my time in the air. I like that. If everyone is nudging everyone, we might get somewhere, nudge by nudge. There are also others who propose more of a step change. For example, a hydrogen electric commercial air service was recently announced to start between London and Rotterdam in 2024. I wish it had existed when I was flying back and forth between the Netherlands and the UK. The partners, including propulsion technology company Zeroavia, are in talks with the airlines to operate the flights with the 19-seat Dornier 228 twin turboprop. According to Willie Walsh, we should also be nudging our politicians. I'm also more encouraged about the pressure that will come on in Europe to finally address at a political level the issue of the single European sky. It's well documented that this could reduce CO2 emissions from the industry by 10% in Europe. Huge reduction and available without any significant investment. The technology exists. It's being held up by political intransigence, which uh, quite honestly is disgraceful. And personally, I struggle with the idea that politicians can lecture the industry uh, about what it is they must do while at the same time failing to do what they can achieve with a very significant reduction in, in CO2. So I think we need to call out politicians in relation to this. We need to challenge them as to why the single European sky cannot be achieved in the short term. If the changes we discussed in Episode 5 do not happen soon, is there a future in aviation, even if all of us still want to fly? We asked our Swiss pilot, Andrea Ufer, what he would tell a young person who dreams of being a pilot. I would tell him, hey, go for your dreams. Go for it. And uh, I'm sure aviation will still be around in 30, 40, 50 years from now. How the job will be, 
how the technique will be, I don't know. It's going to change, but this makes things interesting. Having options is definitely something that is important for a young guy today, but not only in aviation. I think if you start dreaming building bridges, you might end building boats. The airline industry pledged in 2008 that they would be carbon neutral, net zero, by 2050. The average tenure of a CEO is 5.4 years. So declaring that their companies will be net zero in 2050, knowing that they will already have earned and spent their bonuses, probably means that these statements are meaningless. Can we expect real efforts by corporate CEOs if their incentives aren't directly linked to reducing the company's impact on the environment? Unlikely. Can we assume that the government, the politicians, will help us figure out how aviation can reduce its carbon footprint? IMD Professor Michael Yuziji, who we spoke to in our last episode, isn't so sure. The sad conclusion is that their tragedies are common. For all the reasons I described, politics is often the epicenter of failures of collective action and the tragedy of the commons. In one of our first episodes, we referred to the vote in Switzerland in which people refused to bring in a CO2 tax to airline travel. The message here being that Swiss people are not willing to pay for a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. It is a similar story in the United States, where survey data from Pew Research has shown that Americans are much more worried about the cost of health care, the size of the federal budget, violent crime, illegal immigration, gun violence, and several other issues than they are about climate change. If Americans and Swiss are representative of the world, we should be worried about the progress on climate change, even while some billionaires are pointing to space as our future. Patrick, fun fact. Did you know that the flying test site on Mars at the last NASA mission was christened Wright Brothers Field in April? And that the helicopter they flew contained a piece of the 1903 Kitty Hawk plane? I hope the symbolism is not lost on our listeners. Which makes me think back to what we heard earlier about Elon Musk's SpaceX rockets maybe one day being used for travel on Earth. Paris to Singapore in 39 minutes, anyone? Elon is now focused on getting us to Mars. But maybe we should be thinking about clean up Earth first, then fly to Mars, versus get to Mars to get us out of this mess. We asked IATA's chief, Willie Walsh, for a final comment for our podcast. Airline CEOs who were skeptics about climate science only a few years ago publicly committing to achieve net zero, uh, publicly committing to sustainable aviation fuels. So while we face many challenges, uh, we will have opportunities. I, I think there's a real and honest commitment to do everything that's necessary to secure the financial sustainability of the airline industry alongside the environmental sustainability of the industry. And that, to me, is a very, very strong message and a very strong positive. Patrick, what are your last thoughts as we close this podcast series? Whoa, making sense of so much and summarizing last thoughts risks missing out much. Three things, though, come to mind. 
First, I discovered with you how important it is to be curious and keep exploring to avoid simplistic answers to complex problems. Secondly, as our colleague Professor Phil Rosenzweig constantly points out, look at the facts, at reality, and resist the halo effect, whether it is positive or negative. Beyond the hype, pollution by aviation is relatively limited, but it is linked to some heavy users. We know that more passengers will start flying. This will drive up air traffic, which will increase aviation's negative impact on the environment. Fortunately, COVID has focused the attention of many players, like airports, airlines, companies, and politicians. They are taking actions. The challenge is, will all involved be flexible and bold enough to make the necessary changes fast enough? The third idea I take away is about personal responsibility. If it is hard to make the right decision for ourselves, we may make it for our loved ones. Paul Polman, the former CEO of Unilever, recently recommended in the FT that decision makers think about their decisions' consequences for the world their children will inherit. This is a powerful Simple rule when answering tough questions such as, should I fly? And your final comments, Jim? Following a recent UN climate report, I remember an expert saying that the impact of emissions is already baked in for the next 20 to 25 years, meaning that no matter what we do today, we will have to live with what we have created. I have only 20 to 25 years left on Earth, and that is if I'm lucky. So that means I'll have to live with climate change, and anything I do to substantially reduce my carbon footprint will only be felt by my kids as they approach middle age or their children. That's worth it to me, and I will do everything I can, but humans typically aren't good at choosing to suffer in order to help others. We all want instant, immediate gratification. Let's hope others think this way. Whether that is about flying, shopping, eating meat, how we build and heat our houses, how much plastic we use, how much we travel or what we drive. Dear listeners, what you do now is up to you. You could take the approach that it is up to others to change their habits, not you. You could say, my job or my family require me to fly. It's up to the airlines and manufacturers to make my impact less. And in the meantime, I'll eat less meat, buy carbon credits and drive less. You could decide that yes, I'll change, but only when government policy forces me to. Maybe you'll say that you will educate yourself better and push the pause button more often. Be the pilot of your life. Whatever you decide to do, Thank you for listening. The pilgrimages we take, whether they be for business, tourism, or finding a mate, whether they be within our home countries or to the other side of the world, are part of who we are, by nature and by necessity. Man is not going to stop traveling, but we must stop traveling in the way we have. On behalf of IMD, thank you for being with us on this exploratory podcast. 
More of our podcasts can be found on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Just search IMD and hit subscribe. I'm Patrick Reinmuller. And I'm Jim Polcrano. Until next time.